I want to ask you um, how well you think these self-help titles might sell. I mean, would they make the New York Times bestseller list? I was thinking about this whole passage that Paul keeps talking about when he writes to Titus about doing good. And so you get to the end here, he talks about exceptional work. How would, how would a title like How to Be Below Average sell? <laughs> or I'm thinking like How I Achieve Mediocrity. Three easy steps to a life of boredom, sadness, and perpetual discouragement. Or I was thinking maybe of a title like How I Got to Be Less Than the Best. You know, they wouldn't probably make the New York Times bestseller list or would they make Oprah's uh, book list, would they? Because they're really almost too familiar to what we sometimes feel quite often about ourselves about some of the things that we may apply ourselves to, whether it be in our businesses or our athletic team sometimes, or maybe even in the ministry. But I was thinking about this as I look at these last few verses, and I, when I come to an end of a, a, a series, which we're coming to here this week, um, I always feel like when I'm done reading a, a really good book, I just I kind of wish there was more. But Titus, he ends here, and he ends, in, and I'm going to read to you these verses in verses 12 through 15. And I just ask you to listen. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our, must, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings greet those who love us in the faith grace be with you all and that's how that that letter ends and that's what we're going to look at today what would it mean for a church to seek this simple concept of exceptional ministry for you to seek that in your own personal life with some of the things that you apply yourself to what would it mean to seek this at every level within every age group throughout every ministry in the hearts of every person who attends as we close this study, and as we, before we get into it, I, I just want to say I don't believe exceptional ministry is about exceptionally great big programs or buildings, although so they may be helpful or useful in a ministry. But I believe primarily at heart, in its heart, exceptional ministry is what Paul has been referring to throughout this tiny little letter. It's about people, about you and me, devoted to doing what is good, what is right, and not necessarily, again, devoted to doing great things. I like what Mother Teresa has, been, has said. We can do not great things, just small things with great love. It is not how much you do, but how much you love, uh, how much love you put into doing what you do. I think that's worth repeating. I mean, underneath all this and about doing good is, is this very simple concept. It's not about great things, just the small things that we do day in and day out with, with great love. It's not about how much you do, but how much love you put into doing what you do. I'm convinced that the small acts of love and goodness done repeatedly and consistently is by itself great. Not necessarily will it always be in the eyes of man, but in the eyes of God, God sees it, and he calls that great. The idea of merely doing good for goodness' sake, you remember that song, good for goodness' sake? 
And doing this good over and over again and again becomes something great. It's exceptional in the true sense of the word because it's an exception in our world today. It's not often seen. It's not merely about people involved in church programs doing good, but this is the, it really extends beyond that to everyday attitudes where you touch people's lives, where you connect with people. It's the opportunity that you have on a regular basis daily to have the kind of attitude and the kind of heart that when there is good to be done, you actually do it. You follow through with it. Exceptional ministry is about our being devoted to doing good wherever we go, wherever we live. First, I would say in our home. It's one of the easiest places to overlook. So often it's easy for us to be thinking about doing good in other places. But you know what? If you don't do it in your home, you don't do it with the people that you are supposed to love most. If you're more concerned about doing the good out here because that good out here reflects on you in a way that's different than the good that you do in your home, there's something wrong. It's about doing it in your home. It's about doing wherever you live, among friends and neighbors, where you work, where you go to school, and in your church. There's three simple instructions that Titus gives. If you open in, in this, to the Bible in Titus, that letter, he appeals to Titus to do three things. And what he's concerned about here is not so much the what that is being done, but I think in the how these things are being done. Because he says, do your best. Do everything you can. And then he says, be productively good. Do what produces fruit. And the key idea is simply this. Learn to be devoted to doing your best, doing everything you can, and doing what you know to produce what is good. Now, when I say your best or everything you can, or I talk about being productive, I realize that there are some among us who are like obsessive compulsives, right? You know, a bit neurotic perfectionists. Some of you are maybe kind of elbowing the, the person next to you about that right now. And, and I want to kind of let you off the hook because those of you who are guilt-ridden and are possibly prone to that, I would, I'd like to say, do close to your best, okay? <laughs> do almost everything you can and live with the idea of being somewhat productive, Okay, those of you who are elbowing that person right at that point because they're obsessive, compulsive, perfectionists, I want to tell you, you don't have that problem, obviously, so I'm going to say to you, uh, do not settle for okay almost or somewhat. Because <laughs> you're getting elbowed right now, right? Well, the first thing is, for exceptional ministry, he says, do your best. And specifically, Paul says here to Titus in this third chapter in verse 12, he says, do your best, in a sense, to get away and get to be with me. And, and the idea here is to get to, to retreat. The idea of planning is, I think, behind what Paul is after here. He says, do your best, verse 12, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. He hadn't made a decision yet on, on which of these two um, he sent, and, and we'll refer to them for the sake of my ability to pronounce the names as their nicknames, Artie and Ty. He says, I want you to send Artie and Ty. Um, I'm going to either send one of those to you, but I want you to do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 says something similar as he writes to Timothy, because I think he's, he's calling a team meeting in a sense. He says, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas... 
Because he loved the world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. He goes on and on and he, he lists these different things. Second Timothy 4.21, he says the same kind of thing to Timothy at another point. Do your best to get here before winter. And I think he's referring to this time of getting together with some of his key ministry partners and leaders. He says in a sense to Titus, do your best, give it your best shot. It's that kind of attitude that causes God's work to grow. It's that kind of spirit that creates the environment for the supernatural to become natural. Do your best, not perfection, but strive in a sense for excellence. Ted Engstrom writes in a book, The Surge of Excellence, he says, striving for excellence in our work, whatever it is, is not only our Christian duty, but a basic form of Christian witness. And our nonverbal communication speaks so loudly that people often cannot hear a single word we say. It's kind of what I said in the very beginning of this series, that we are in a time in, in I believe, um, Christendom, evangelicalism. We're at a time in the life of those who are Christ followers where the world is not asking for us to speak another message. It's really pretty clear what we believe. What they're asking for is to see our lives that reflect that sense of loving and doing good. They want to see it in how we act. And so in a sense, he's basically saying striving for excellence is something that's important because guess what? People are going to be looking at you and they'll be watching. Now, the, the, the place that he calls him to is Nicopolis. And this could be a number of different places in that, that Mediterranean world where, where Paul was, was on these missionary trips. It could have been the west side of Greece, below what is Macedonia in that day, and it was a port city. It could have been a, a, just above Macedonia in a place called Thrace, which is by the Black Sea. It could have been a couple other different places, but most scholars believe it's somewhere along that coastal area. And it's that really nice area, especially as up by the Black Sea. It's, it was a really wonderful vacation kind of resort spot that people would go to. And so in a sense, before winter, he says, I want you to get here. I think he's calling the team together at this point. And, he, and he, I think the application is obvious. He's, he's making this, this statement of do your best to get here because I think in doing good, you need to plan, you need to get together, you need to get time to reflect and meet together in order to do the kind of things that are going to make a difference long term. Exceptional kind of ministry, the things that are done that are good, don't just happen usually by happenstance. They happen because people actually get together and, and actually decide to do things that will make a difference and be good, whether it be in a community, in a workplace, whether it be in ministry. But I think the obvious application here is if, if it's um, this warm climate place where Paul is calling the staff together, I think he's saying for exceptional ministry to take place, the staff and management team basically needs to follow this winter principle. And so I would like to kind of just share with you, I think it would be wise for our staff to plan to get away to go to someplace like Naples or Palm Springs. <laughs> and he specifically says winter. So if you see us take, well, no, just kidding. Okay. The name's Artie and, and Ty were to replace Titus in Crete. He was going to send someone to continue to do the work that Titus had begun. He was sending replacements. And I believe he was sending them. Artemis, um, there's no mention of him anywhere else in Scripture. For Tychicus, he was a close associate of Paul. He's mentioned again in 2 Timothy 4.12. 
At that point, he had been sent to uh, Ephesus to replace Timothy. So these guys kind of came in and, and spelled these ones who were kind of doing work. We're told that he also was from the west coast of Asia Minor, probably from Ephesus or a town near there. In fact, Acts chapter 20, verse 4 says, in a list of names, which probably represents the different areas um, from which Paul was going to bring the offering to Jerusalem, he says, Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. And he mentions those. So that, that's kind of the background of how those people are. But he's saying, Timothy and Titus, do your best before winter sets in to come and to meet with me. Get away. You need time to get away, to be quiet, to listen. Time to be alone, to be together as a team, to plan and to pray. You need to do well at doing good. And the only way you do well at doing good often is that it's just not spontaneous, random kind of things of goodness, although that's expected where we live and, and as we do that. But even as a church, as, a, as, as ministries, we need to not just kind of come in with a haphazard sense of we're going to just do these activities. We need to actually sit down and think with great intention and great purpose, why are we going to do what we're going to do? And how can we best achieve what we want to do to bring about change in people's lives? How can we bring about the best kind of change, even on Sunday mornings, in people's hearts and lives with regard to developing their character in Christ and in thinking through what it means to help people take steps to become more like Christ? Harvard's professor, a man, his name is Michael E. Porter. He's a pioneer in the area of competition, strategy, social responsibility, and how charitable causes can do their best at being good. He gave a talk to a group of Christian leaders. The talk was called, Doing Well at Doing Good, Do You Have a Strategy? And he comments that random acts of kindness is a great thought and has good intentions, but the kind of good that makes a difference and becomes exceptional requires a long-term strategy involving people in doing good repeatedly, consistently, and in a focused area. Good intentions are not enough. The act of charity is not enough, he says. The obligation on us, even as a church, and in some ways, all the more so as followers of Christ, as people look at us and what we do, is that we use people's times, relationships, and financial contributions to do the most possible good that we can. Right? I would hope that would be your expectation of this place. In essence, he says, we're to do our best. We need, as Paul did, to plan well in doing good. And I was thinking about that last night. We had a silent auction here. And I was thinking about the fact that at this silent auction, we were actually raising money to help to send a group of people this summer to Peru. Now, I can tell you that if you didn't get a chance to give last night, we're still taking donations. The youth ministry would love for me to to let you know that. But you know what? What I thought was very interesting is I was watching that they weren't just random acts of giving financially to, to a group of people to go one time to connect in some way to do something good in a community. What is really exciting about that Peru ministry, it was something that was started a long time ago with, with a sense and a plan of sending people over. And that has developed and begun to flourish. And from that, they've even actually started another church plant. I think of the things of, of, of a trip that goes to to Poland, a, a trip that allowed for a group of people to come and to worship and develop a church ministry. And from that church ministry, that church has begun to take people within that church in Poland to plant other churches there. I was looking this morning at a, a group of people who are getting pictures for the Mongolia trip, which is one that we're beginning. Those are all what I call doing well at doing good. Because they're done with a sense of a plan that something would be established and be done over and over and over again. 
That's really what we're going to seek to be doing in kids' ministry. Um, I've asked people this summer if you would, you know, if you haven't had a chance to sign up to help us through the summer. But one of the things that we want to do in the summer is put together the kind of plan so that when we come to the fall, we're able to do these repeatedly good, consistently good things within the lives of the children of this church, like you saw singing here, so that they would come to know at a very early age how much God loves them and they would live that out throughout their life. He says, do your best. What does that mean for you? For exceptional ministry, he goes on, he says, do everything you can to help, which addresses, I think, in a sense, the attitude behind this. Titus 3.13, do everything you can to help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. These are two missionaries that would come into places and they would minister among people. Zenith, the lawyer, we don't know anything about him in any other reference in Scripture. But we know a lot about Paulus. He is known both in Acts and in 1 Corinthians. He was one of the important church leaders in the day. He was, in fact, a great preacher. He was what you would call one of those class orators. When he would get into a room and he would begin to speak, he would speak so poetically and so fluently with such a sense of conviction and power that people would be ready to do whatever was being asked. It reminded me of a story of, of um, George Whitfield when he was preaching. He was so such a great orator, he was such a good speaker that when he would speak, um, people just responded. And he would be raising money for these orphanages in, in, down in um, Georgia. And, and that was one of the things that he would do when he'd come over America, to, from, uh, from England over to America. And I remember reading a, a book about Ben Franklin, and Ben Franklin at one point, had come to many times to listen to George Whitfield, and they had met and talked, and, and Ben Franklin was pretty, pretty staunch in his belief. And, and he, one time he said he came to the meeting, and he decided, because every time he came, um, times prior, he would give the money that was in his pocket. So this time he decided to come with nothing in his pocket. So he's there, and he's listening, and, and Whitfield's going on, and Whitfield's calling him to respond. He's saying, he's, he's painting this picture of these kids who have needs, and, and they need money. And, and Franklin says, he turned to the guy next to him and said, could you give me some money? I think Apollos was one of those kind of speakers. He would go into these places, and, he, and he, he's appealing to Titus. He says, Titus, what I want you to do is do everything to help this kind of person to get the ministry going that needs to get going. God has something that he wants to do that's really good in other people's lives. And in a real sense, what I think he's saying to us in this, in this whole process as we build this church, he's talking about our attitudes and, and all the things that we're called to do together. And he's saying, do everything you can within your power to bring together these things, to do the kind of ministry that God wants to do here. He says, do everything you can to help. That they have everything they need. Would you do all that you can to make sure that they don't have any lack so they can go out and do the things that God wants them to do? The heart of that is one's attitude. Imagine what Titus' attitude could have been. Ah, man, Paul, you're asking me again. Do you know what a character this Apollos guy is? Could you imagine the critical attitude or the complaining spirit or the negative spirit he could have had? And, And Paul is saying, I really want you to check your attitude. What I want you to do is to do your best to get here so that we can plan to do well and doing good. And then I want you to also recognize that you're to give everything you can to help this ministry that God has called here through Apollos and through Zenos to continue on. I want you to be a part of that. I want you to help them to make sure that they don't have lack so they can do what God has called them to do. He didn't have these attitude killers. 
You know, your attitude is one of the most important things that you carry with you no matter where you go, whether it's in your family, whether it's the place you work, whether it's at your school, whether it's within your community, within your home. The major key to a better future in your life, honestly, is you. It's not your boss, not your salary, not your situation. It's you, it's your attitude, and almost everything you do. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you, have no, do you know of any person who's a grouch? You're all laughing. Must mean some of you do. I mean, really, bona fide grouches. The kind who frown and mumble and belittle others, walk around with a gray cloud forever hanging over their heads. They're not much fun to be with, are they? They're afflicted with the disease of attitude. And when they wake up each morning, they intuitively know it's going to be a lousy day. But on the other side of the, qu- of the equation, I want you to ask, are, are there people who are in your life that you know who are always seem to be up? They just got this can-do spirit. They're pleasant, they're interesting, and they're interested. In contrast to the grouse, they're just a joy to be around. In fact, you look forward to seeing them. They wake up and they go, God, thank you for this day, and what do you have for me to do it? I want to give everything I can to help move forward the things that you have around me. Their warmth, their humor, contagious. Their attitudes are healthy. And you ask them to do all they can to help, and they say, sure. And when they get done, they ask even, what else can I do? You ever work with someone like that? One of the ingredients of an exceptional ministry, places where much good is done, is throughout it there's just this healthy attitude where people are behind it, they're pleasant, they're excited, and they work well. Theodore Roosevelt, he was a hero of another generation, said this about attitudes. It's not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out, points out how strong, the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming. We're not going to, in any situation, go through it without making mistakes. It's not the critic, he says, who counts. But it's the one who does actually tried to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at worst, if he fails, at least he fails at doing something greatly. Far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even through checkered, though checkered by failure, than to rank with the poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. And I, I read that and I thought Paul's challenge is to Titus and to us is, not the gray twilight zone of mediocrity. You know, the, the bestseller lists of how to be average. It's the call to do our best and to do all that we can. To move forward God's kingdom. I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what it means for you in response to the things that God has called you to do within this body. I don't know what it means for you with, re, with response to the gifts that you have been given spiritually whether it's to be used here in this ministry or used in some place that God is calling you to be used. I don't know what it means for you with regard to your finances and getting behind something that God wants to do. But I do know the Word of God says do everything you can and and make sure there isn't lack so that can happen. As we work together to follow Jesus as a body, as a group, I think it's imperative that we do our best and we do all that we can. And then for exceptional ministry... He says, do good that's productive. 
Titus 3, 14 and 15 says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Isn't it interesting? He says, to doing what is good. Now he defines that. He says, in order that they must provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith and grace be with you all. Paul says, learn to be devoted to doing good and defines it. Because in that day in Crete, there was a problem. There was a problem among people who said they followed Jesus Christ. A number of them didn't work. They didn't even have jobs. They didn't care to have a job. They weren't willing to hold down a job. And what Paul was concerned about was the reputation the church could easily get. And that would be of a group of people who weren't living productive lives, but were living off of one another. And this wasn't just a problem in Crete. This was a problem that was occurring throughout other areas, especially in Macedonia and Greece. That's why Paul was so concerned not to appear that way himself. And it's one of the reasons he worked rather hard at earning his own money for ministry. He didn't want people to see him in any way as undisciplined. He didn't want people to see believers as lazy. He wanted to model it, and he wanted believers to model that as well. And so if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, he says to this group, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Isn't that interesting to lead a quiet life? I'm not asking you to go around, and he's not even saying going on street corners holding signs and placards that say, you know, Jesus saves. He's not saying that, and I'm not saying I'm against that on certain occasions. God leads people to do certain things that I don't quite understand. But he's saying... Make it your ambition to lead quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands, with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Second Thessalonians 3, 6 and through 15 is a long portion on this. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers. See, he had written one letter and it hadn't gotten any better. To keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help. Paul had another motive behind all this. He said we did this in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. That's a pretty strong rule. We hear that some among you are idle, unproductive. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire. I love this. Never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. And listen to this. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. How do you do it? He's basically saying, you know what? If they're not going to follow, if they're not going to, to get in line, then what I want you to do is, is break fellowship with them. Not because they're an enemy, but because you love them and you want them to come to a place where there is a sense of shame for what they're not doing. So that they will then begin to, as a result of that, desire the kind of fellowship so that they would do what they should do. Productive good, according to my definition, and what I think Paul implies here, is good that meets real needs and produces fruit and brings about a profit. It's lives that produce good. And the whole idea of doing good is a process. It's a process of combining the knowledge of truth, teaching, 
with personal action doing. That when you know something, then you need to go about as best you can to change that with your actions. Whether it be an attitude that you have, whether it be something that you're doing. I remember when I was uh, in high school and the first time I was, was called to account, this is before all the ecology stuff and before they had even signs that said don't litter. I remember walking with a friend of mine in high school. I had just taken off a wrapper on a piece of gum and I threw it on the ground. Oh, I know, heaven forbid, I'm so sorry. And I'd drink a can of pop and I'd throw it down. And I'd take a couch that I want and I'd put it on the side of the road. No, I'm just kidding, I didn't do any of that stuff. <laughs> it was just taking a wrapper I'd throw it on the ground. And I remember him getting angry with me. And he said, you know that that stuff, and whatever it was, you know, we talked about, he started talking about how it decomposes this and that. And I'm just, and he said, everybody did that. You know what it would look like? And at some point, at that, for some reason at that point, the knowledge of truth hit home. And I changed my actions to this day with regard to wrappers and things like that. I'll put them in my pocket till I can find a place to throw it away. I'll even go to the point that when I see something often on the ground that's laying there, I'll pick it up. Because when you know something that's true, your actions need to follow suit. You need to do what you know is right. And it's amazing. It's amazing this concept of what he's saying is simply this. People within a society, if you don't all work and contribute, it's going to create problems. Within a church, if you don't all contribute... And, and, and give what God has given you to give, it, it won't be exceptional. It's best. As the executive director, when I was at Trinity at the radio station, I remember a lot of times we'd do these share where we'd be asking people to give money. And I would get on the air and I would say often one of my standard lines was, you know, how many people when you go downtown look for a parking thing that, that, that someone else has put their money in and you're going to try and get to top on theirs? How many people do that? Yeah, I do it too. Okay, come on, confess. I said, you know what? In this radio station, there's 150,000 of you who listen every week, average, and there's only 5,000 who contribute to, to, to the ministry. And I said, you know what? A lot of you like to park in someone else's quarter. i got to tell you, if we want exceptional ministry, it means that all of us are going to have to come together with the gifts that God has given us. And in a sense, we don't ride on someone else's quarter, but we just personally say, God, what is it you're calling me to do? And I want to do good. Where God is calling you to do good. Because amazing things happen when good is multiplied among a group. I want you to watch this um, little um, footage that you may have seen before. But I was sent it this week. And it was just on Thursday I was sent it. And I, I was so moved by it again that I thought I'd show this and then just make a comment and we'll pray. We had uh, planned to bring you a story tonight about a kind of prep school that prepares football players for the NFL draft and big contracts. But we're going to call an audible. We're going to switch sports tonight because we've run across an absolutely amazing basketball player that we want you to see. Here's Steve Hartman. Greece Athena High School in Rochester, New York, has a new most unlikely hero, a special ed student by the name of Jason McElwain. Keep it going. Jason is the basketball team manager. For the past couple years, he's been assisting coach Jim Johnson, helping with whatever the team needs. And go! Get him motivated and uh, hand out water and just be enthusiastic. Enthusiastic, to say the least. Despite being born with autism, Jason's father says his son has never had a problem expressing himself at basketball games. 
you know, I was always concerned that he might get a technical and they lose a the game because he, you know, start yelling or whatever. Let's have a hard practice tomorrow. All hour and a half. And let's get ready for Arcadia. Okay. Let's go. One, two, three, two. Because he has been so devoted to the team. For the last game of the season, Coach Johnson decided to let Jason actually suit up. Not to play necessarily, just to let him feel what it's like to wear a jersey. At least that was the plan. But with four minutes to go in last week's game, Coach Johnson stood up and pointed to number 52, Jason McElwain. After years of fetching water and poweling off other people's sweat, Jason was actually in a game. His first shot was a 20-footer from the right baseline. Was it close? Did you almost make it? I just airballed it. <laughs> I'm like, just, dear God, please, let's just get him a basket. His second shot missed, too, but the third was a charm. A three-point no-doubter. And Jason wasn't done yet. Not by a long shot. If I wasn't there to witness it, I wouldn't have lived it, you know. You caught fire. I just caught fire. I was hot as a pistol. Jason ended up shooting six three-pointers. One right after the other. He had 20 points total. And each time a shot went in, his teammates and the crowd went a little crazier. His last basket, right at the buzzer, created total mayhem. Because he is autistic, Jason says he's used to feeling different. But never this different. Never this wonderful. Steve Hartman, CBS News, Rochester, New York. I just had to show that because here's a kid who devoted himself to being good. And here's a coach who made a choice to do good and just put him into, you know, I think maybe at first just to give him a jersey to sit on the side and put him in a game. And then in four minutes, he made 20 points. Tell me God's not in that. And here's a kid who felt different all his life. But in this way, felt different because of the good that was done around him in such a powerful way. And that's what we're about. When, when a lot of good comes together, great things happen. And I believe God's got great things for us as a body. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words from Titus. And may we do our best, giving all that we can, that we might produce fruit that's good. Amen.